Good evening, everyone. My name is Gene Turnbow. Welcome to the very first episode of The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. <laughs> We're here at LostCon 39 on November 24th, 2012. And with us are guests Maggie Sakara, S.K. Hendrick, S.P. Hendrick, I'm sorry, uh, Rob Soyder. Rob Soyder, and uh, Walter Bryant and David Clark. Um, welcome, everyone. I'm glad you could make it. Uh, Maggie, let's. What is it that you've you're working on, and uh, what have you published so far, and, and what are you working on now? <clears throat> well, the uh, not, not entirely relevant. Uh, my first novel was um, a couple of years ago. It's called Molly September. It's a pirate adventure romance. Oh. Um, with only the tiniest little bit of uh, fantasy element, sort of near the end, because I apparently couldn't leave it out. <laughs> Yar, baby. <laughs> no, the, the figure of Fortuna sort of dances in and out. Um, and if you need a Deus Ex Machina, that's a good one to have. Uh, but actually, this spring, I did, uh, brought out, well, I didn't bring out, Crooked Cat Books brought out, uh, The Dragon Ring, which is uh, the story of um, a happily married man, oddly enough, just, just to be different, um, who is a reality show host on British television, who's very organized, has always been very organized, what he's good at, but he's uh, left his music and his other arts behind and made his life just more complicated than it needs to be when he suddenly finds that he has fallen afoul of the King of Fairy. And Oberon has a task for him to do to make up for that, and that's what leads him into various uh, places in the past to rescue the three parts that he has broken of a dragon arm ring that has to, has to go back to King Alfred the Great uh, in order, of course, to save the world and keep his family together and everything else. So. Uh, that's the first of a series. Uh, the second book is King's Raven. Um, my character, Ben Harper, is uh, given <laughs> the services of the King of Fairies' principal gentleman, who's a shape changer called Raven, and in the second book he sort of takes center stage. Uh, so that's it gets to be much more fun uh, as we go along, and he, because he's the one you all fall in love with. Theoretically, I know I do. So that's and that's where I am right now. That that series is going to go on for a little while. It's not always. Oh, it's not just a trilogy. There will be more. And um, S. B. Hendrick, you've got quite a number of books. In your, yes, uh, um, we uh, have Glastonbury Chronicles. S. <laughs> B. Hendrick is the author of the Glastonbury Chronicles series. Also, the Tales of the Derrickshire. But the two series interconnect. They dovetail. Although one starts out in Roman Britain, and the other one starts out in 2065. Uh, you have a series of people who keep reincarnating together with a purpose, and an immortal who just happens to be the first son of Cahulan, the one that you never hear about because his mother, Uya, is mentioned very briefly and is given to Cahulan as his wife by her mother, Skaya, and then you never hear about her again. So uh, his, his son, Dougal, becomes an immortal who is charged with waiting and watching with the Morrigan until the she returned to Terra Mound. 
and he has a lot of adventures throughout history and keeps crossing paths throughout history with the same group of people, one of whom is the Sacred King, whose blood must be shed in order for the land and the people to survive. Uh, the Glastonbury Chronicles goes off planet in book three and takes place on a, a planet called Britannia where all kinds of incredible things happen and the planet is a very strange place. The atmospheric pressure is not absolute and the boiling point of water therefore is not absolute and the, the Brits there drink a tea that is native to the planet and if it is boiled at too high a temperature it produces all kinds of interesting effects. Um, yes? about those interesting effects, but honestly, I think I should let the readers find out for themselves. It's interesting effects in the fact that they're hallucinogenic unless you've built up a, a tolerance to it. It also protect, protects the people against something called phase lightning, which is a, an effect of the planet. Mm -hmm. If you cross the, the various lines of the planet at the wrong angle or in the wrong place, on the inside of the person and will literally explode him. But the uh, the effects of the tea somehow do something to the the chemistry of the body, which makes them immune to this. Um, it's a mythology-based series. It's based on, obviously, Celtic mythology and folklore. Uh, one of the characters in one of the series is Robin Hood. Um, when Dougal gets to that point in time, he is battling against King John, who has more or less usurped the throne because it rightfully belongs to Arthur of Brittany, who was the next in line for the throne, and it's uh, trying to get Arthur of Brittany back on the throne, which of course fails, as anybody who remembers history knows that John actually did manage to, to take the throne. But he goes off between Boudicca to uh, the reign of King Stephen to the last one in that series was with uh, Robin Hood, and then he turns up in the Glastonbury Chronicles in the, the fifth and sixth episodes. The current one out now is The Barley and the Rose, which was released earlier this year. It is volume six, and what I'm working on right now is a deck of tarot cards that go along with the series because the tarot cards become very important in book five of the series. Thank you. That's wild. Been, you've been very, very busy. Yes. Uh, Robert, how about you? You've got, uh, you have something which I I just love the title, the Brass Jack Trilogy. Oh, thanks. Tell us tell us about that. Uh, well, first let me introduce myself, Robert Soiter, a newbie writer. I'm honored to be sitting here with all these <laughs> distinguished authors who are much better at marketing than I am. Uh, I was very lucky. I got uh, picked up by Hunt Press. They uh, Right here at this convention, they had a, a, a panel, and they said they were an independent uh, publishing company, and I followed them around like a puppy dog, and <laughs> they said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll help you publish your books. And so my first book is going to be coming out. Uh, in December, hopefully. Uh, it's uh, part of a trilogy. Uh, trilogy. I didn't know it was a trilogy when I was starting. You know, yeah. you, when I Your kicked them the file, they kind of looked at me that. and said, dude, you've committed trilogy. <laughs> oh, so um, I come to writing as a professional storyteller. I go to schools, museums, renaissance fairs as True Thomas the Storyteller. 
telling all sorts of stories. And so moving into print was kind of an, uh, has always been a natural for me. And it also gives me a very firm background in myth and legend because that's kind of where I live. I love traditional stories. Interestingly enough, Brass Jack is kind of a, a mixture of epic space opera with big ships flying around blowing stuff up and uh, powder and sword uh, wielding uh, scraps on a planet where technology doesn't work all that well. And so uh, you put in a bunch of ex-spooks uh, and secret agents and that sort of stuff from the far future, and hijinks and fun ensue. Hijinks ensue. I think that's a phrase that that is really only used with television series from the 1960s. A lost yeah. panels. Hijinks ensue. You and your wacky antics. Yes. The wacky, that's it. The wacky antics of your hero and hijinks ensue. Uh, Walter and David, uh, you are uh, Day Zero, and uh, you're also Offshoot Comics. Yeah, yeah so course. of Offshoot Comics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, we're two guys who met at church and uh, started writing comic books instead of doing what we were supposed to be doing there. Just no one else came, so we're like, you know what, comic books. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, like, for, for me, uh, I'm... I'm doggone near 20 years older than he is so I've been wanting to be a writer since before he was born and then God said to me you know just wait there will be this guy who comes along when you're a little bit older and you two will make the, the perfect pair here and we started working on well that, that was actually a joke no, he, was, yes. he, he was waving at the uh, the uh, 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 Placards. The, the placards, the comic book covers, yeah, so, uh, heretic, heretic number one. one. Yeah, the, the the design for this guy actually was a, a parody for Batman. Like, I, I had this idea for this stupid Batman thing. Like, if people figured out that Bruce Wayne was actually Batman, then suddenly everything Batman had ever done would be called into question, and they would start thinking that maybe Batman was the, just some guy who was trying to wipe out the mob bosses so he could take over. So I, I was like, okay, I can't do that with Batman because... Marvel or DC, neither one would ever hire me. So, you know, I think I would just create some guy, call him Inspector Spectre, and then run that story. David saw it and goes, hey, you know, if we put some magical powers on this guy and then and then stick him into the world that's full of magic, actually, then he goes, no, let's not give him any powers at all. Let's give him a bunch of magic stuff. Put him in a world full of magic, put the entire world against him, and then we just... We started um, just spitballing ideas, and next thing you know, we had Heretic. Yeah. Cool. And uh, we're also working on a few more titles that will be coming out around WonderCon. We've got one called Hard Drive, uh, and Plot Hole, and I think Host is coming out. Hopefully. Yeah, and then trying to do Fallen also. Yeah, we, we have a whole lot of ideas. We just got a bunch of different artists. Um, one art team that worked on X-Men wants to work with us. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I was like, that oh, awesome. okay, yeah. <laughs> you guys are really climbing up fast. I'm, I'm really impressed with that. Now, to uh, a little bit of uh, truth in advertising here, these guys already produce three of the shows that we run on Krypton Radio. Uh, there's D-Pad, which is the gaming show. There's uh, Off Topic, which is about comic books, but they can never stay on topic. <laughs> title. <laughs> and there's Anaholic Time Chamber, which is about anime and, and animation. Um, the, the topic of today's discussion is the development of mythology, myth and legend, uh, as a backdrop or a substrate for, uh, for the creative work, the, the, written, the, uh, the written body of work uh, that is the, uh, 
you know, the, what writers do. So um, uh, let's uh, let's start off with with uh, True. Let's start off with you, okay. and True Thomas. Also, this is Robert Soyder is also known in the SCA as True Thomas, uh, storyteller of some. Well, Some Tom, renowned. Thomas Whitehart in the SCA, but uh, as, as a storyteller to Thomas, uh, I know the perfect pitch here. Everybody goes to the well. And by the well, I mean the well of inspiration. There is no story that is new under the sun. And if you look at modern media, Harry Potter, Batman, it pretty much at least two-thirds of what we call creative entertainment ties back to folklore, mythology, legend in some way. This is, you know, there. if you look at, for instance, Harry Potter, she takes very liberally from a lot of different sources. Lord of the Rings, again, pulling from the Kalevala, you know, so on and so forth. And so those of us who are writers and creators, when we run into those myths and legends, there's something inside that just rings and resonates. And then we say... Okay, I want to play with this. I want I want to bring this forth and reintroduce people to the legends, even if it's a new interpretation of the legend. So, uh, you know, I kind of wish Disney and some of the other big media moguls would kind of go back to the to the well and and do what they could to support traditional storytelling and support the people who help make the myths and legends and get them out there. But that's my own personal soapbox. So uh, that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sue, how about you? What, where, where, where did you start from? What was your foundation? My foundation was um, I've been reading mythology since I was about six years old. While mm. everybody else was reading comic books, I was reading mythology, and then I got into comic books much later. Uh, I think that. For a long time, the only mythology that was actually available was Greek and Roman. Um, Egyptian mythology sort of came around when the, the King Tut exhibit came in. Things became more and more available. But it's really hard to relate to in a Western civilization. Um, after that, I think the latest one, the Viking mythology was, of course, around all the time, um, having gone to a high school, which the team was called the Vikings. Um, <laughs> we had a lot of access to Viking mythology. The last one that I really got into, because it was the hardest to find, was Celtic mythology. It was almost as if the British people figured that they were Christian since before Christ was born. <laughs> that there was no mythology, oh no, none of this ever existed. Every now and then you'd have Lady Gregory or somebody like that write stuff, but that was all stuff that had been written about mostly in the Edwardian, Victorian era. And even then, most of the time they would go back to the Greek and the Roman, and for a, a small part of time they were doing the Egyptian thing, and that got all mixed up with the, the magical workings, and that all became very uh, in the forefront. But Celtic mythology one day hit me over the head. Um, I think I had I'd spent the 31st of October at Stonehenge by accident because it was the only day I could go, the first time I was over in England. And I got back and sort of my ancestors bonked me on the head and said, don't you think maybe you should be studying your own particular background? 
and the stories there have not been overused. They've not been told a lot. They're, they're, it's not like you're seeing Hercules and Xena and all of this stuff again and again and again. And it, it's not the Ray Harryhausen movies coming out all the time. And it's not all the same characters. It's something that hopefully will catch on. I think one of the problems is, is pronouncing, pronouncing the, the names because for a long time I would read a book and... Connor was C-O-N-N-O-R, and then all of a sudden I'm seeing Conchobar. Yeah. And it's, no, 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 that's pronounced Connor. Oh, all right, I see why they've every, made it. Every time you see H, that means backspace delete. Just yeah. about. <laughs> Unless it's with a B or an L, it becomes a W or a V, depending on what county in, in Ireland you're living in. Uh, Except yeah, on a Tuesday when it's a shrunk. Exactly. <laughs> In one of the stories I tell, uh, uh, Brian Brew asks uh, a puka for his true name, and the puka goes, <laughs> Welsh, huh? And Brian Brew says, I studied Welsh just for this occasion. Was that two L's and a W? <laughs> Wiping the spittle from his face. <laughs> so, uh, hopefully, I understand that there is a move afoot in Ireland to, to do some of the Cahoolan saga as films. Um, hopefully it will happen. In one of my books, I'm talking about the uh, opera version of Cahoolan done entirely in Gaelic, which is a wonderful cool. fantasy, but you know, when you've got all those Irish tenors out there, that'd be awesome. it would be fun. Yeah. It would <laughs> really be fun. It's not too far outside the realm of possibility. There was the whole um, uh, opera slash musical uh, 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 produced by Mike Stevens in Wales, all in Welsh. Yeah. For those of you just tuning in, that is the, the dulcet tones of Evan Brooks, famous musician and singer. We are free plug. We actually play some of your music on oh, well, the Radio, Evan. It's, Excellent. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Cthulhu. Yeah. Hey there, Cthulhu. Uh -huh. It's one of my favorites. Uh, we are actually recording before a live audience, so this is this is uh, this is real radio. I mean, this is this is the good stuff. Uh, it is your grandfather's radio. It is. It really is. It's everything old is new again. Maggie, what about how? Where did you start as for the foundation for your the mythology for your book, oh. uh, the Dragon Ring? Well, the funny thing is, the Dragon Ring began as uh, a concept. Well. It sort of began as a bunch of notes about, I did something I, I always accuse other people of doing. I decided I wanted to write a book, <laughs> as opposed to having a story hit me over the head and say, I need to be written and here's how it goes. Uh, mostly because I had been wanting to do NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month, for quite some time. And year after year, I either missed it. Or because it's in November. If you don't do it in November, you got to wait till next year. Yeah, you know, there seems to be a recurring theme. The the, the ladies who run uh, the Corsair's Closet, one of our other shows, uh, one of them, um, Mad Woman of the Box, she just she's in the middle of uh, doing the NaNoWriMo herself. Mm -hmm. So well, that year I would have been finished by now. Well, I would have hit the fifty thousand mark anyway by now. <laughs> uh, it ended up at fifty eight. It is now one hundred and six. Mm. Thousand years, so mm -hmm. it needed a lot of fleshing out. But the thing was, actually, we were at uh, in a hotel waiting for a uh, Great Western War, I think, the next day. And I, 
I just said to myself, what if my friend Ari had to solve a mystery? Uh, it was in September, so I still had time to both plan and then outline and then write in November. Uh, so here I was with my friend Ari Burke, who otherwise well-known children's author, hey. uh, solving a mystery, which, which people who know him, every time I say that, they always crack up. So it seemed like it might be a good idea. <laughs> so I just, I, it woke me up. It wasn't so much a story as this, this notion, and I just started making notes. I got out my trusty little spiral and started making notes, and I filled a couple of three, four, six pages, um, just doing the what ifs. What if this happened? What if I had this? What if he was, maybe he should be married, you know, what if, and then somehow or other, what if, what if the fair involved? And then I started, I had to go back to thinking about what I know about the realm of fairy, and uh, what the thing one needs to remember is that the perilous realm is perilous, so things have to be dangerous as well as charming. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they're more likely to be dangerous than they are to be charming. Mm -hmm. There are no, they are not tiny, well, there are little wee folk floating around the story, but they're mostly annoying. Uh, they're the ones that are laughing at Ben every time he tries to do something. Um, but the, uh, the great fae, of course, are tall and beautiful and more Tolkien elf-like than, uh, than otherwise, but just calling, I've been doing this for so long, I've, like Susan, I've uh, started reading mythology as a, as a young girl. Uh, I remember when the, Lynn Carter was doing the adult fantasy series for Valentine and bringing out all those classics of old fantasy, uh, and including Evangeline Walton's Magmanogion, mm -hmm. which is where I first ran into Welsh mythology. Uh, not that that's specifically applied here, but all of it kind of adds up. It all inevitably informs my understanding of what that is. And then there's all the other fantasy written, which, oddly enough, I haven't read that much of in the last 20 years because I started reading other things. I kind of got away from that, uh, which is probably a good thing, so I'm not, I don't feel like I'm being derivative of anybody else's particular work. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can be derivative of ancient stories, that's fine with me. I don't care. But I'm, also, I'm not sitting down to do that in particular either um, because in between... Amongst all that, I also consider this a historical novel. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Ben breaks this ring, and he has to go find the pieces. They have spun off into time, and one of them uh, he takes him to Elizabethan London, and one to a farmhouse or a, a manor house, actually, in Devon in the 18th century, and one actually flings almost all the way back to Alfred's court, but he has to go fetch it because they have to be put back together elsewhere. And it just so happens, I know a whole lot about Elizabethan England. Uh, my first actual book is The Compendium of Common Knowledge, 1558 to 1604, uh, 03, um, which is the handbook of everything you ever wanted to know about Elizabethan England, uh, high and low, uh, which is available just at, well, at your favorite online bookseller. And I've done, I was after working in the Renaissance for 25 years uh, as a member of the court, where we're playing historical people, which means you spend more time in the books than is necessary for most performers. I have a particularly <laughs> finely honed understanding of what goes on there. So that part came together very nicely. And, but in each of those places, of course, fairy is always there. And when you find yourself uh, on a mission for the King of Fairies. Sometimes he goes with you, sometimes he sends someone with you, and sometimes he, you get left alone 
and there's a big surprise when you discover that all of you there thought you knew about Elizabethan London because you were brought up this way, because he's a, Ben is a fair brat, um, is wrong. Well, not wrong, it's just not what you expected. We think we know what Elizabethan English sounds like. What happens when you're immersed in it and it doesn't really, and you have all the different dialects, all the different accents, all the people in a city, like, like being dropped into New York <laughs> out of the blue. Um, it kind of throws him for a while. So, but it's all right, he gets to duck back into Ferry when he has to, you know, calm down. But. So, uh, did you, uh, did you find yourself having to, uh, uh, your original concept didn't involve the world of the Fae. It didn't. Well, it did by the time, by about three o'clock that morning. <laughs> uh, because if I, okay, if he has to solve, it also didn't really mind of being a mystery, which I still, I have on my list of things I would like to do, and I, that's actually a couple books down the line now. But, yeah, it sort of turned into an adventure story, and then it became a fairy tale. So, um, somehow or other, we, what we find we really have here is uh, a hero on his journey with, through a mm -hmm. successively more difficult tasks or, or trials uh, it, before he can accomplish what he has to accomplish. And, and then finally, he still has to go rescue his own son, um, who Titania has made away with. So, uh -huh. Or actually, being saved from her, but... Nevertheless, that's uh, once one heck of a story. Goes on. That's one heck of a story. Well, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> no, go ahead. I think one of the things that uh, all the writers here we we take a um, huge amount of uh, we've been blessed because all the storytellers of old have given us this legacy, this beautiful, rich, really deep and mysterious sometimes and sometimes it'll just you'll come into you'll run into something in a book somewhere and you'll just go what the hell what i i don't know who this person is where did this person come from wait and that leads you right down around a corner and and suddenly it, it has a big impact uh catherine briggs encyclopedia of fairies one a fantastic book if you if you get a chance to play with it it's little um like one or two paragraphs of different fae folk that she, you know, put into this encyclopedia. And when you run into something like the Nuklavi, which is this hideous inside-out creature the size of a whale with a person and an eyeball and everything, and if you see it, you're dead. Which begs the question, how does anybody know that it existed? Or what it looks like. Or what it looks like. And, or uh, the, the, the water leaper. You hear a smack across the water and a sailor's gone off the deck of a ship. You know, uh, you know, all the there are hundreds and hundreds of different fairy creatures that 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 would beggar the mind. And you look at something like Joss Whedon's Buffy, right, where he's creating demons and, and creatures from whole cloth. And you're mm -hmm. kind of like going, oh, no, no, wait, I've got this really cool one. And believe me, I love Joss Whedon. You know, he's my master now. And so uh, <laughs> but if you look at folklore and mythology as interpreted through us, the writers, Look at uh, Avengers. What is Avengers? Well, hey, look, there's our Norse god, Thor, back. But this is the, the, the blonde Fabio, you know, Thor, who, he, great movie, so on and so forth. But, you know, I'm always envisioning the big bristly beard, red Thor who, you know, uh, makes the ocean salty. You know, it's Thor, but there's an ointment for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of you know, lost, though, at this point, because, like, people my age don't know anything about that. Like, in, in Heretic, 
um, one of the types of magic we, we have fairy magic and it's not sure. spelled like with a Y it's spelled like it used to be spelled right and when we had people my age read it they laughed at it they're like oh it's fairy that's cute I'm like no fairies are not cute oh no like <laughs> that's why when they do fairy magic crap dies like <laughs> you know the way the way I, I tell people and I'm telling the stories traditionally I say the fairies will lead a child to a cool clear puddle of water just to watch the bubbles rise yes they're not from around here they don't know what cheese is okay and yeah, the fairies, you don't mess with them. They were called the good folk, and you left them alone for a reason. It was called apotropaeon. You, you, you call it something that it isn't in order to ward off the evil. Right. Look at the Avengers. What do you have? You have a Norse god. You've got a guy with magic armor. Right? Uh, you've got... Uh, an archer, right? You know, uh, a guy who essentially is a possessed shapeshifter, or a shapeshifter. You know, the Hulk. You know, he's essentially possessed by some demon. Uh, and uh, uh, Captain America, a hero with a shield, a magic shield, yeah. right? And of course, it wouldn't be complete without a redhead. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, you know, the standard joke is, uh, what's the difference uh, between a, a redhead and a, a, a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. For those of you who aren't seeing this, I'm sitting next to two beautiful redheads. So, <laughs> but. Uh, the, the point is, is that we keep coming back to themes. Uh, Joseph Campbell did a really great job of like looking at myth and legend and, and peeling it back and going, oh, by the way, this is how this all works. And George Lucas, you know, gave a really great nod of, uh, to that when he put on the big exhibition explaining the hero's journey through Star Wars. Lord help us now that the mouse has it, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> with a little luck. You know, they'll they'll stick to the to the uh, the mechanisms that uh, that Joseph Campbell very well described in his books. Well, Joseph Campbell was uh, was well studied by George Lucas when he was oh, writing his, his yeah his when he was writing his uh, original script, and he had many conversations with him. I think it's also uh, very pertinent to remember that mythology is not really mythology unless it is the hero's journey. Otherwise, it's folklore. And the, the difference between folklore is, folklore is what has replaced mythology in the world today pretty much because they don't want to put the paranormal into it unless you're getting into comic books, fantasy, and science fiction. Um, but or demon. when you get into the difference between the two, the, the, the Robin Hood, original Robin Hood is folklore. There was a British TV series that came over here called Robin of Sherwood. I think here it was released as Robin Hood. And Richard Carpenter did a mo most wonderful thing. He put in the figure of Hearn the Hunter, mm. yeah. a god figure from British mythology. And the entire, yeah, entire thing changed. It became mythology. You had that one beautiful thing in there. And it became the hero's journey. Robin of Sherwood, Robin of Loxley, Robin of the Hood started out doing things that he didn't want to do. He went on a, on a journey with companions. He had a mysterious parenthood. You never know. He was, he was an orphan. You, you don't know who he was. Um, he met up with a teacher 
who was a, a paranormal person, a, a god form. He was led to do things that he never expected to do. Down the line, it becomes the hero's journey the way that Campbell did. And he did not want to get mixed up. He walked away the first time when, when Hearn asked him to, to be mm -hmm. his son. Mm -hmm. So this, these are all the things that become the hero's journey. Actually, The Wizard of Oz is mythology because it has the entire hero's journey in it. You've got the companions. You've got Dorothy, who is an, an orphan living with Auntie M. And the, the wicked witch is the antagonist. She does not really want to go to Oz. She just sort of ends up there, meets her <laughs> companion. Yeah, she's, she's got her companions, starting with the dog. And often one of the companions is an animal. Um, and she meets, she's looking for the, the Wizard of Oz. First, she meets up with the supernatural Glinda and gets taken to do all of these things that she never really wanted to do. And she grows. They all grow. You, you see Neil Gaiman pick that up so well in American mm -hmm. Gods. Oh, oh, yeah. You see um, in Fables, right, where Fables, the, the graphic novel series, if you haven't read it, you got to read it. Um, all the fables are running to Earth because their worlds are being shut down. And I won't tell you who the evil villain is, but it's wonderful. Um, uh, but in fables, you know, you have Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, all the fairy creatures, all the, the old folk tales, Jack Be Nimble, Jack Be Quick, all these different characters. They're all running and trying to live in Manhattan. If you look at uh, Superman... Right, the Superman exactly. journey. I was, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, that's, right the there. Superman is. It, that's the Moses story. Hey, got look, all the, got all the parts, including Jor-El, the the, uh, the nice the sort of uh, early early the, Hebrew names. Exactly. The, 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 the wizard, <laughs> just the, the wizard figure, the, the you know the old man, the, the mentor figure. Who helps him on his way? A tisket, a tasket, an orphan in a basket. Hello, he's your new savior. Exactly. <laughs> he, was, he was the only begotten son of his father sent to earth to, exactly. to save mankind. He lands in a cornfield yes. okay. or he's picked up from the rushes and he either becomes Moses or Jesus Christ or, or one of the Sumerian uh, mythos as well. Yeah. You know, it's the same story. Yeah. So created by a couple of Jews. Yeah. <laughs> What's all this L stuff? Yeah. Of <laughs> God. Yeah. That's what that means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, Shh, don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think, personally, I as a storyteller, as a writer, I am just honored to be able to even play in that same pool. At night when I wander between fires and I'm looking up at the stars, I see those stars as the previous storytellers and, and bards and, and writers that came before me. And if I do just a little bit a little bit more that people pick up my, my book and they enjoy it and they enjoy a new story, or if I tell a traditional story and people go off and tell somebody, oh, yeah, I heard this great story about Thor, or I heard this great story about Cahullin the Hound of Ulster, or, or what have you, then... We've we've done our part of adding back to the well, but the thing is, is one of the problems is that we don't acknowledge it. I'd like to read actually the dedication in my book, the the latest book. It's to all the unsung bards who have woven and rewoven the tapestries of myth throughout the ages in the colors of their own particular culture and understanding, and to those who will come after. Mythology never dies, but is reborn in each and every mind and seen anew with each pair of eyes, beholding the universe around them. As the ancients connected the dots of the stars in the sky to make pictures from their mythology, 
So do the dreamers of today chant the mantra, what if, and connect the dots of what might be. Mm. Very nice. And that, folks, is why she's a writer and you should buy her books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, really, the reason you should buy her books is because they're actually very good. (laughs) Being worthy isn't really enough. (laughs) So a lot of, yes. Yes? Oh, well, I, I kind of feel out of place over here because every, every, everyone's pulling their, their stuff from, like, Western stuff. My stuff all came from, uh, like, Japan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, my tell us about that. And that's something well, yeah. hasn't been touched too much. Yeah, before I was in the comic books or anything, the first thing I ever got into was an anime called Gundam. That's where my creative life started out. And the thing I liked about it was that it was it, it's about a war, obviously, but there was no good and bad side. There was just the side you happened to be on. Um, and the good guy didn't always win. It wasn't always a happy ending. It was realistic. You know, like, sometimes not everyone makes it through, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but that's one thing, mm-hmm. at least in comic books, Western comic books, everyone always makes it through. Or, like, recently uh, there's a thing called um, cool. Fear Itself in Marvel where uh-huh. Thor died, and that was supposed to be the last time Thor died. And then a few <laughs> months later, they had Avengers versus X-Men, and he was just back. <laughs> and no one ever like explained well, that. The, I, I think in the mythos, in, in, in the Marvel mythos, when Thor Thor has died before, and he goes to Valhalla, and he crosses back over. Well, yeah. He, he never time, actually dies. But this time, that didn't happen. It, it was He was fighting uh, Odin's evil brother, and it was supposed to be the final death, and everyone was mm-hmm. crying. And Betty even explained him coming back to a human or whatever. He just decided, but, no, I'm back. No, that's, <laughs> well, I think that in... in the Japanese and the Celts have a lot in common. Uh, you know, the traditional Celtic story is it's all beautiful and glorious and everybody dies horribly. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much. Sounds about right. But there was a reason for that. One of the reasons was, is, hey, I'm working for warlords who are paying my salary. As a bard, I have to make war look great and wonderful because I don't really want to tell the world that you're a bunch of, you know, psycho-homicidal bastards, <laughs> right? So I'm going to make it all beautiful and glorious, but, oh, I'm going to throw in that little hook saying, hey, you know, a little chivalry and being nice is not such a bad thing either. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, if everybody goes around and sticks everybody with big knives, everybody dies, and where are we then? We have a question from the audience. Uh, you were talking about the, the book of the Encyclopedia of Fairies. Japanese mythology has the most amazingly strange beasts. Weird. Like, why are they not here in America? Not, not only that, but the Japanese stuff is, is their folktale and fairy tradition will scare you right out oh, of your yeah. skin. Oh, oh I mean, this is criminy. Yeah, they do dark like, like light doesn't exist. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's starting to come over more and more through anime. Um, the yeah. one I picked most of my inspiration from is called uh, it's called Naruto, where he for like just literally stole Japanese history. Oh yeah, and just said oh. now they're ninjas. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like no, He's you never just mad ninja. Like like he had you know came up with a group called Izanagi. Like oh yeah, I came up with this. No, that's a Japanese god that's been there for a long time. But uh, that's where we well I pull most of mine from that and. He comes from, also comes from comic books. So, like, for example, Heretic is kind of a fusion between West and East, because that's where I pull all my stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 I'm a newbie to Western comic books. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of more like a uh, samurai Indiana Jones. (laughs) 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 If Indiana Jones could fight and, you know, had had any kind of magic whatsoever, then that would be the guy that he would turn out to be. Yeah, Indiana Jones is definitely a traditional archaeologist. (laughs) (laughs) He's got another question in the back. Uh, RJ, could you come up so that the microphones can pick you up? Part of the problem is that when we when we get asked questions, these microphones are faced at us, 
and they can't necessarily pick you up. So, RJ, what's what's your question or your comment? Uh, this entire class is about how uh, mythology transcends into modern day you know, things like science fiction and such. But I have a question as portraying the mythology because you kind of define what that is as compared to folklore and other things. Are we done making myths? No. Because, I mean, you said that all the plots have already been taken, but... No, no, they're not, they're not taken, they're just continually changing. All right. Can we make the question, and I actually was asking myself this when the topic first came up. Are we really making new myths, or are we retelling them? Exactly. So they're changing, they're changing shape. We're getting new stories. There's always new stories. Yeah, but are we going to make any new myths? I, we're human. I'm not sure how much yeah. different we can be. As you look at a story, you go, hand. ah, I see where this, is, this element is from there, and this is, you know, RJ, uh, sit down if you vision. would, because the camera. Every time in human history, uh, when people have said, uh, you know, we can't do any more uh, on this thing, we have done all there is to do, someone comes along and says, Man, yeah, sorry, I'm going to do something new. And blap, and suddenly it explodes again. There's, how many of you guys remember? Nor oh, I'm sorry. Oh, well, that's so. Uh, one of the big things that we actually strive to do is to make our own story. Yeah. We actually have a story, um, it's called Plot Hole, where the plot, the subconscious of humanity, is a character. And the story takes place, you're walking through sure. other yeah. stories that people in the past have told. Sure. And we, you know, we have each type of story as its own island. And as humanity gets more and more into just you know the regular pop culture stuff, we have the old island starting to die off, which is kind of the main... Lot, it sounds a lot uh, like it's it's similar in some ways to Sandman. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying like slowly like by changing little things. Like for example, every time a hero is captured, the bad guy talks to him, you know, monologues and lets the guy get away. Yeah. In our world, if you get captured, you're dead. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> how, how many of you guys remember Northern Exposures? Here. Oh, yeah. Northern Exposure is one of the best TV series that ever came out. And there was this great part where a couple of the Native Americans decided they were going to do the anthropo uh, anthropological thing of researching uh, <coughs> the white folks in the town. And, and because they had been so inundated by people coming to them, you know, asking, how does Raven affect you in your day-to-day -day life, you know, and so on and so forth. And so they started coming to, to, the, to the white folks in the town saying, um, so what does Paul Bunyan mean to you, yeah. you know, and, and things like that? And nobody had a clue. And they said, well, what myths and legends make a difference to you? And the only thing they got back was, you know, urban legends about the, the spiders and the hairdo and Kentucky mm -hmm. Fried Rats. And they were stumped until finally they went into the, the local theater and they looked up on the screen and they said, that's where, that's where the Westerners have put their gods, mm -hmm. up there on the screen. Mm-hmm. The Clint Eastwood is the hero. The John Wayne is the hero. The trickster is, well, Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, all the the usual suspects. You know, uh, yeah. But but the thing is, is you know, where are we putting our mythology now? We're putting them in our comic books. We're putting them in our in our novels. We're putting them. And, and that's where it's living, and now it's living at, at a much, much faster pace, you know? 90 miles an hour, no brakes. At, at a meme speed. Exactly. <laughs> it's as if the, the myths will always be there, but the folklore 
is almost culturally or socially based, and it develops through as the culture changes, mm -hmm. the folklore changes, but then the god story and the hero myth still fold, can fold that in, but it's still the same story. Well, because mythology is essentially about the gods. Yeah. I mean, mythology is, is the religion of, or is the, are the stories of someone else's religion, mm -hmm. right? We don't have Christian mythology, do we? So, but aside from yeah, that, right. <laughs> aside from that, not like yet it done. Yet it done. Um, but folklore are those stories that people tell about little some of this urban folklore. But I've just been reading Catherine Briggs' English folktales, mm. and most of them were collected in the early part of the 20th century, or, or the book was published in the 60s. And most of your sources, especially this one woman in particular, who was told this as a child. You know, 60 years earlier, by her great grandmother, who had been told it by her grandmother. So some of these stories go way back, but and you know that they have changed. They've all turned a little bit as time goes on. But a lot of them sounded, except that they were mostly in, you know, farm people in Somerset or something. They sounded like the kinds of stories we think of as urban folklore. Mm -hmm. uh, they're where they don't really have a plot. They're not like the German American. They're not like Grimm's Tales that are sort of consciously. Somebody took these these things people tell around the story uh, circle or around the kitchen table at, at dinner time more likely than a, you know more like that than in a formal setting, and then given them a, a beginning in the middle and an end and made them a nice plot and and the good and virtuous are rewarded and the the wicked are punished at the end. Most of these stories aren't really like that. The way we really tell stories is much more like. And, and then they all died, <laughs> yeah. or the uh, or the uh, the guy that comes to the house. He he's been away many years. Uh, he went to, went for a soldier. He was gone for for years and years, and his parents had given him up for dead. And but he had gone and made his fortune, and he'd returned, and had been so long, and he changed so much that no one recognized him, not even his aged parents, who had now moved into a, a much smaller house and could barely manage themselves, and. He comes to them and decides to surprise them because he knows they don't recognize him. So he, he says, you know, I'm just passing through and uh, I understand you have a room I could rent for the night. So they put him up. But he has let slip that he has come home with all his money. And they're so poor, they're so desperate that they kill him and take his money. And they don't find out until the next day that he was their son. Wow. Is that page three? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a myth. No, there's, there's but it so keeps being told. And these are the stories that engage humans, at least in Western Europe, over and over again. Well, and there's so much of that uh, uh, is centered. Uh, we were discussing earlier, a moment ago, uh, a moment earlier, that uh, uh, that our heroes are on the screen, you know, and we are deriving a lot of our mythology from the the heroes that we invent for ourselves. Uh, Susan, at the end of the uh, at the end of the table. Yay! Yeah, she's the editor for Hollywood Calendar, which is a nonfiction publication. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's a day's listing of events uh, intended for uh, reporters and photographers to cover. Yes. Yeah, but uh, but you see the ebb and flow of of uh, who's important to the public and and uh, uh, well, when correctly viewed, everybody is important. If you've done. If you've done the right thing in the right place at the right time. Um, some of the traditions we've discussed today are still living traditions. We, I wanted to pipe up earlier about Robin Hood. A 
who knew him when actor name of um, Mark Ryan. Oh, whole, whole oh, cloth yes. invented the the notion of of a Saracen amongst the Merry Men. That mm -hmm. is not. That wasn't there. That was never there was before. Day he was a day player and stunt man. He, um, he had no lines in that first. Scarcely any. And, there were Saracens um, among the, the but every retelling since then. Yeah. Has included maybe not by the same name, yes. but the yeah, the uh, assist on that one. yeah. Okay, but but uh, suddenly that's become part, part of the myth. Part of the myth. We've, 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 our popular view has actually rewritten that mythos. Well, that's that's mythology. Mythology. there was well, a Saracen among the Knights of, 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 of King Arthur. That's the Knights of King Arthur. That's yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, but, so there is a precedent story. before yeah. that. Yeah. The, the other thing that that was never in the original legend was the splitting of the arrow that came about right. because of Hollywood. Because that was pure Howard Hawks. How <laughs> he, he <laughs> shot the, he shot the arrow and he split his own arrow one. and they said, "I hope you've got that on camera." <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, the splitting of the arrow has been part. Of it. The, the hey, story, can you, can you come of, near a microphone and tell oh, us that? Okay. Um, the story of, of you know, Howard, before you speak, your your name is uh, the Carl name of the person speaking is Carl Nelson. Yeah, I I am a archery instructor at Tasker Roving Archers, and Tasker Roving Archers was Sherwood Forest in the original Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Oh my! Oh, wow. So that how did that get there? Um, you you are remarkably well positioned. <laughs> yeah, when when they were doing filming Robin Hood, um, they had everybody down there, and they brought the USC archery team down to audition for the part of Aeroplane's double in archery. So they're out there, all, everybody shooting and doing fairly well. And Howard Hawk, who was the called club pro, came in, and he was just his normal practice time. Okay. Shot a few arrows, and he went, and without even really planning it. He split his own arrow. And the cameraman happened to be filming at the time, and the directors went, we got to write that in, because it had not been in you know, the, the, the script at all. And he said, we've got it on film, we've got to write that in. So they rewrote the script around <laughs> him splitting his own arrow so that Robin Hood split his arrow to win the tournament. I thought that was Howard Hill. Howard Hill. Yeah, that's Howard Hill. Howard Hill. Yeah, it's not that difficult, despite Mythbusters, to yeah. split an arrow. And they did it in Brave. They, they can they do it. it. Um, I, I've seen people split arrows without even trying, so it can be done easily. But as I said, they got it on film, they wrote the script around it, Robin Hood split the arrow to win the tournament. But as I said, that whole area down there was, was Sherwood Forest, and, and when they're riding it across the river, they cross that little deer. Royal there, going to the forest, and it was, they couldn't do it now because too many bridges and too many fences and stuff, but at well, the time, Is it a mini mall now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but at the time, it was, it was open enough they could do it, so that's mm -hmm. how they got that script in there, that part of the in there. So that's, that's the story about it. And that Thank just you. proves that in any generation, any writer or any incident can be... An, you know, the, the creator or the, the changer of, of well, an existing myth. The 13th century writers were, you know, wrote in Sir Lancelot. Okay? I was just going there, yes. They were just going there. <laughs> but confused. he wasn't he wasn't in the original myth. No. That was all written. That was a romance writer's dream. Very no, French. King Arthur and Merlin. Hello, two separate two, two separate myths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, this is not Mythbusters. This is myth. Great deeds, of great deeds of fruit of heroes. 
as I was taught in school, uh, that when you have someone like, say, David in the Bible, there you wind up with all these stories, or any, any number of heroes, that they, they can't possibly have lived long enough to actually have done all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, or yeah. been in all the places they could possibly be. Uh, or, or in which stories are told of them. There were a lot of David. Davy Crockett. Well, it's not so much there were a bunch of guys named David, but there were a bunch of guys doing Doing roughly stuff, heroic, roughly similar. And nobody ever heard of them, but everybody knew about the king. And when they're telling stories, they plug his name in. Mm -hmm. Or they plug Robin Hood's name in. Or Arthur's name. It's, it's, it's called storytelling. Well, <laughs> well, the yeah. Goliath thing, I'm not going to approach Maybe Mike very well have done it, or some other guy named David. You know, some other Homer wasn't real, didn't really write the Odyssey, but some other blind Greek poet of the same name. Kevin, <laughs> yes, yeah. go ahead, Evan. Um, I, I also heard that Kevin one Brooks. of the reasons why we have so many, um, so many uh, uh, stories about um, the heroes who were the children of Zeus mm -hmm. is that. Every little village in the Hellenic <laughs> Empire had their local tale of the local girl who got knocked up by a god. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and at some point, they all got written down. And it was like, oh, wow, boy, Zeus was really... <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, uh, for, for all of it, for all of the writers here, uh, what... Uh, what are you struggling with right now in terms of uh, developing mythology for, for your current works? Well, uh, i got to tell you, uh, speaking of going someplace unfamiliar and uh, somewhat unusual, well, I realized that actually at the beginning of there's some movie or other that I wound up, uh, somebody said, here, you have to read these, and it, they're Assyrian. Uh, yeah, uh, oh, you know, cuneiform slogs and that sort of thing, and lots of well, actually, not lots of. You know, there are lots of demons; they don't all have names. Uh, but I've got a couple of thick-ish books of uh, Assyrian mythology and Assyrian and Babylonian texts. Some of which, I mean, they're they're grouped. So this this is the curse off of this tablet, and including all the places where the words are left out. And then here's the one that's just like it from another tablet, so you get to see the same sort of spells and, and curses and invocations, I guess the same kinds of things used in a variety of ways, uh, including some of the recipes for the, the noxious potions that you're supposed to either spread or mm. swallow or turn into <laughs> pastas or something. Um, most of which you can't imagine anybody surviving, but they were, hey, they were dying anyway. <laughs> uh, oh, it must have been a demon. So I've got all these wonderful stories, uh, and I have a story called The Curse of the Crystal Palace, so far, at the moment. Um, in, the, in King's Raven, part of that story takes them to Victorian London in, 18, in the 1850s when the Crystal Palace uh, was, well, mm -hmm. amazing. Uh, it was built in 1851, and it was made modular uh, so it could be taken down and put up again, which it was on Sydenham Hill across the river four years later where it stood until 1936, but it burned to the ground. But aside from that, here we are in 1855, and what it mostly is, is it's sort of the museum of the masses. It was the first time anybody had thought of bringing ordinary people in to see the great wonders of artwork and wonders of the world. They didn't actually have any actual wonders of the world. They had plaster casts and copies, and they was, but they sent people out all over Europe, all over the world, mm -hmm. to make to look museum at quality sure. replicas. Uh -huh. And people could come in and ooh and ah and you know, mix with people of other classes. 
<laughs> well, suppose they actually, and they had a huge copy of the Elgin Marbles, Marbles, and a whole bunch of other Eastern things. What if the British Museum actually loaned them some stuff that was just coming in from the dig at uh, not at, yeah at Nineveh mm -hmm. or at no 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 we're talking Iraq basically northern northeastern Iraq northwestern Iraq. I have a story that takes me this far, and I know where I've got this part of it outlined as well. But I have this this demon, and their demons are ghosts. They're hungry ghosts, like in Japan, slightly. Where if the ancestor isn't continually given their offerings and so on, if that family dies out and no one takes care of this too, you know what ghosts, Assyrian ghosts do? They have to eat and drink like everybody else. If they don't get their offerings, they eat dirt. Whoa. That's yeah, and, and, well, that's not very imaginative. <laughs> it is if it, if the dirt's under your house. Well, there is. Oh, yeah, they also bury people under their homes as well. That's yeah, we're so a, they build tombs is they put them in, you know, a, a, a chamber under the house. Uh, if they can't get dirt, they'll take blood. I've made a critical mistake. I've asked a very intriguing question uh, of the entire group of seven panelists. And you let me take the whole thing. And I let you take the whole thing, and we're almost out of time. I will, I will give the floor over to whoever wants to take <laughs> right, it. Well, we can probably summarize up pretty quickly. Okay. Um, our biggest challenge is that uh, within, with Heretics World and another world we call the Project Universe, um, it's too big. Because <laughs> yeah. this, uh, this last spring, uh, I was my last semester in college, and they told me that your GPA is so high, whatever you do, you're graduating with honors. I'm like, mm, don't tell me that because now I'm not going to do anything. So I spent my entire last semester coming up with 300 plus years you know, of history. Oh. And now we're oh. in production, so it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you've got 300 issues of Heretics. <laughs> there we go. Is that a wheel of time? And then, like, <laughs> if I can step back um, real quickly um, to, to the points you guys were making before. Like, in all, this, in all this mythology and history that you've talked about, there's nobody that looks like us in any of that. Yeah, none of it. So, in, in, a, in a lot of in a lot of ways, who can't see, we're African American. We're, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, in a lot of ways, we are developing um, kind of new stories for for ourselves and for our people, trying trying in a way to to involve us in yeah. in history that we are actually part of. I mean, we're we're there, and, but but we're important more than just February. We're, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to offset yes. the Marvel and DC yeah, event where every time a magical ring or some explosion happens, it's always like that same white guy in New York. That's by the numbers, that's impossible. There's like yeah. seven billion of us now, right? <laughs> Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, people, five billion are brown. Live with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're not all magical. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this has been a Krypton Radio broadcast, the very first episode of the Event Horizon, November twenty fourth, two thousand twelve, here at the Lost Con thirty nine. Everyone, thank you for attending. It's been a great show. Thank you. Special shout out to Gene. Thank you for putting this on. You have been listening to the very first episode of The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Please visit kickstarter.com and become a Krypton Radio backer. We need your support. Stay tuned for X-1. I am Eric Betton for Krypton Radio.